Please do have a seat. And uh, can you please turn with me to Acts chapter 9? Actually, it might be easier to start with Acts chapter 1. Why don't we start with Acts chapter 1? Right? I'll open up Acts chapter 1. We're going to get to 9 eventually. So if we open up to Acts 1, and if you're using the Church Bibles, it's on page 1095. And there's an outline of where we're going on uh, one of the handouts that's given to you. On the inside of that handout, there's an uh, outline of today's talk. Now, imagine that you're at your workplace and you are told by your immediate boss of a change in company policy. But you're not really sure if it's official or not. You don't know whether it's just your immediate boss trying to change the way your team works. Or it really is a change endorsed by the company's leadership. Now you'd need to know, wouldn't you? Especially if you need to make otherwise controversial decisions that had the potential of blowing up in your face. You can make it the wrong way if you get the wrong end of the stick. Next week we're going to be looking at a huge change in the way the early church functioned. And the little passage that we're looking at this week is going to be a start in setting the scene to help us work out if that change really was from God or not. So it's setting the scene of understanding next week's passage rightly. But before we look at that little passage, let me explain to you where we are up to in the book. Now, for those of you who have been with us for a while, this is actually our third series in the book of Acts at Smack. The other two series we did last year and the year before last, and this brought us all the way up to chapter 9, verse 32. Uh, but for the sake of those who weren't here, and those whose memory is as rusty as mine, we're going to take a little helicopter ride, and we're going to fly quickly from Acts 1 to chapter 9, verse 31. All right? And that will set the scene for our passage today. And then we're going to land at 9.31, and then go a little bit more slowly and explore the terrain at the end of chapter 9, as we prepare ourselves for next week, chapter 10. Now, the book of Acts is a sequel to the biography of Jesus written by Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four biographies of Jesus. Luke wrote Acts as part two. It begins just after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 1, the risen Jesus is there teaching his disciples. And he promised his eleven disciples that soon they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament, God's people were created as God brought his people out of Egypt and he brought them through the waters of the Red Sea, a kind of baptism. But the new people of God would be baptized not just with water, but with the Spirit. And so the true Israel, the true people of God, would be created and restored under the rule of King Jesus and the Holy Spirit would bring that about. Now the disciples wanted to know when. When are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus said, no, 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 the timing is not for you to know. God would bring people into his kingdom. They would be his witnesses. The first stage was going to be in Jerusalem. 
The city where God's kings of old would rule from. The city where the temple was. Where God would dwell in the past. Start with Jerusalem. And then it would be extended in the second stage to Judea and Samaria. Judea was in the Old Testament times that was, that was Judah. Samaria in Old Testament times that was Israel. It used to be one nation back under King David and King Solomon a thousand years beforehand and then it got, because of Solomon's sin, got divided. It divided until, until the, this point in time. Judah, Israel. Judea, Samaria. It's going to go out to that. And then from there it was going to spread to the ends of the earth. And as Jesus said this, he was lifted up in a cloud, ascended to the very presence of God himself, to the highest place of the universe, as the King, the Lord of all. Well, that's the first half of X1. The second half of X1, the ascended Jesus appoints his twelfth disciple to replace the traitor, Judas. There were twelve. Twelve was a very significant number because twelve was the number of tribes of Israel. And Jesus is going to restore Israel, starting with his twelve. But there's only eleven, because one apostatized. Put the one more in, you've got twelve, ready to start. And so in chapter two, God pours out his spirit, as he promised. He enabled them to speak his word in languages they never learned, to the amazement of all around who heard them. Because he was reversing the curse of Babel. Way back near the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 11, God punished human beings by scattering them, making them not understand each other. And now, he was changing all that. He was gathering his people and did a wonderful miracle so they could all understand on that day. They could all hear the word of God spoken in their own language. And on that day, the apostle Peter one of the followers of Jesus, one of the original twelve, preached a fantastic sermon. He declared that the resurrection of Jesus, of which the apostles were eyewitnesses, fulfilled all the Old Testament promises, showed that Jesus was indeed the promised King. And many, many people turned to Jesus in repentance and faith that day. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit, became the people of God, and many were baptized in water, symbolically, just like Israel of old went through that Red Sea, became part of the new people of God. And just like God did signs and wonders through Moses in the Old Testament, when he's creating his people and bring them out of Egypt, the same thing was happening here. Great signs and wonders and miracles. While the rest of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship expressed in the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And the Lord kept adding daily to their number those who were being saved. In chapters 3 and 4, though, we saw persecution break out among the Christians, well, against the Christians. The apostle Peter, apostles Peter and John, healed a, 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 a lame man in the temple courts. Peter preached to the amazed crowd who had gathered in the temple to, 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 to find out what's, what's going on here. And he accused the Jewish leadership of conspiring to kill Jesus, God's promised king. 
And he said, look, this is what you did, but God, God reversed that. God raised Jesus from the dead, took him to heaven. And so now you must repent. Turn to Jesus as king. Change your minds about him. And many people did. But the authorities put Peter and John in overnight detention. They tried to persuade them the next day, please stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But the apostles said, no. We must listen to God rather than man. But in the end they were released. Went back to their friends. They all prayed together. They prayed to the sovereign God who holds everything in his hand. They didn't pray to stop the persecution. They prayed that they would be bold to preach the word of God. They prayed that God would continue to do those signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And their prayers were answered. God filled them with his spirit. Enabled them to speak his words with boldness. Now, all this seems pretty good, doesn't it? You'd be forgiven to think that, wow, this is like the perfect church. But friends, the church on earth is not the church in heaven. There is no perfect church on earth, not even that early church. You'll never find perfection in a church here. And the very next thing we see is that incident in chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. Here were a couple, the early church, these guys were really generous. They used to sell things, to give the money to the apostles, to distribute to those in need. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they had this field. And they sold the field, and they pretended that they had given the full proceeds to the church to distribute to those in need, but they didn't. They actually kept some of it back for themselves. Now, they didn't have to give anything. They didn't have to give the whole thing. If they're but the thing is, they pretended that they did. And they pretended to be more generous than they were. And when they were confronted, they lied to the Holy Spirit. And God brought his judgment upon them and struck them dead. There will always be people in churches who are pretenders who pretend to be more whatever it is God will bring his judgment in the end God doesn't always do that when people pretend in church but he only has to do it once right at the beginning so that we realize how dangerous and evil it is and so like the Jerusalem church we might have a great fear of the Lord when we gather with his people Well, in the next part of chapter 5, we see the apostles continuing to perform signs and wonders. More and more Jews are turning to Jesus, their true king. And the Jewish religious leaders are jealous. They arrest the apostles again, but miraculously, they escape. God releases them. And what do they do? They go straight back to the temple and start preaching again. Because the Old Testament had foretold that the word of the Lord would go out from Zion before spreading around the world. So the apostles were re-arrested, brought back to the council, the Jewish council, and they said, look, we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus, and you are filling Jerusalem with this teaching, 
and blaming us for his death. See, that's the important thing, isn't it? They're worried about it. It's not good PR. They're blaming us. And Peter declared, we must obey God rather than man. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Obey God rather than man. You killed Jesus, but God raised him to life. He exalted him as the leader and the saviour. And he offers to Israel repentance and forgiveness. The testimony of the apostles and the works of the Spirit testify to it. The council, they wanted to kill him. But an old respected rabbi, Gamaliel, persuaded them not to. So they just flogged them and set them on their way. And these apostles rejoiced to be considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. And they kept on preaching that he was the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? And then came the first recorded church dispute. Told you it wasn't perfect. Right? There was a fight. Now we're at the beginning of chapter 6. One group, Jews from a Greek-speaking background, felt that their widows were not being treated as well as the widows from an Aramaic background. See, the widows have no source of support, and so the church would be supporting them. They say, no, look, our widows are not getting enough compared to your widows. So what did the apostles do? Well, they dealt with it very wisely. Right, they didn't sweep the problem under the carpet, they didn't try and cover it up. But at the same time, they didn't let it distract them from their main task of prayer and preaching the word of God. And so they got the people to choose seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That is, seven godly wise men. And they delegated this food administration ministry to them. So they can concentrate on the ministry of the word and prayer. The word of God continued to increase. So whatever ministry it is, the most important criteria is godliness. Ministry, uh, the word of God continued to increase. The apostles concentrated on things they were meant to concentrate on. But actually, grew from there. Because one of those seven men who were given the task of managing the food distribution was a man named Stephen. And Stephen was not just an administrator, he actually became an evangelist as well. Quite an aggressive one, in fact. He would go around preaching the gospel and having arguments with the Jews. And he would show them from the scriptures again and again that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And the Jews ended up enraged. They dragged him before the council, accused him of speaking against the holy place and the law. And then Stephen made this long, long speech, giving a potted history of the Old Testament, step by step by step. And in doing so, just jab and jab and jab. Right? So he accuses them of making the temple and their traditions into idols. He ended up accusing them of murdering Jesus, the righteous one. Accused them of failing to keep the law that they so fanatically defended. And they became very angry. The last straw. When full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed up into heaven. And he says to them, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus, whom they had killed, Stephen says, has been vindicated. He's sitting at the right hand of God. 
that is the place of the highest authority. He's the Son of Man, the one the Old Testament said was the one who is worthy of all the nations and languages and peoples to worship him. And they were so angry that at the end of chapter 7 they stoned Stephen to death. And yet in his dying breath he cried out to Jesus for forgiveness. Not for him, but for them. And then a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And as a result, Christians had to flee, they had to get out of the city. And you know what happened? They were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. See, at this point they just wanted to stay in Jerusalem. Persecution comes, they've got to run. And the fact they were scattered made, meant that the gospel went out to the next level of Jesus' plan. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The second stage of God's program had begun. And see, God even used persecution to bring it about. God is a God who brings good out of evil. Philip, another one of those seven, who had been appointed to administer the food, became a key preacher in Samaria. We read about him in the first part of chapter 8. Preached Christ and performed signs. Many believed. But... God waited for the apostles to come down from Jerusalem before he poured out his spirit upon the Samaritans. Remember I said a thousand years beforehand, God had split the nation of Israel into two. Judah and Israel. Judah became Judea. Israel became Samaria in New Testament times. But God had promised, back in the Old Testament, that one day he would bring his people from Israel and Judah back together again under his promised king. On the day of Pentecost, people from Judah in Jerusalem started coming into the kingdom of Jesus. Not everyone. Those who were the true people of God. And now here in chapter 8, people from Samaria are coming in as well. And so God waits for the apostles to come down from Jerusalem before pouring out his spirit to create this new invisible nation under Jesus. Because this nation is going to be under the kingship of Jesus and it's going to be exercised through the ministry, which is going to be exercised through the ministry of his chosen apostles. And so the word of God spread throughout Samaria as well. Northern kingdom and southern kingdom coming under Jesus. There was even a magician called Simon, who professed to believe and, and then later it became clear that it was just a business thing. And he offered money to be able to have the ability to give people the spirit. Peter had to rebuke him. Meanwhile, in the second half of chapter 8, God sent Philip to preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who had come up to Jerusalem to pray. Not sure if he's Jew or Gentile, mostly like, most likely he's an exiled Jew, but Whatever is happening, the, 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 the borders are being pushed. Momentum is building for the next stage. The gospel for the Gentiles. Gentiles are people who are not Jews. You see, God had said way back before in the book of Isaiah, He said this. Can I have the next slide, please? Next one? Oh, I must have missed it. Can we go back a bit? Oh, okay, I missed it, sorry. Let me read to you from Isaiah. It says... 
it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So God is saying he's going to restore Israel and then God's servant king is going to be a light for the nations. God's plan was even bigger than reuniting Israel and Judah. He had a plan for the world. Before he's going to put this plan into practice, into action, he's going to appoint, Jesus is going to appoint another apostle. Remember, he had 12 apostles to start with, representing the restored Israel, the 12 tribes, 12 apostles. And now Jesus is going to appoint a special apostle, apostle to the Gentiles. And in doing so, he would answer Stephen's dying prayer. Because the man who was going to appoint was involved in Stephen's murder. He was a young man who held the coats of those who gave him their coats so they could go and throw stones at Stephen. He was part of them. Well, now he was even more active against the church. The first part of chapter 9 shows he was going around looking for Christians all around the place so he can persecute them. In fact, he was planning to travel all the way up to Damascus in Syria to look for Christians to arrest. And while he was on his way, Jesus appeared to him in a bright light. And Jesus spoke to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? By persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. And that was the event that changed Saul's life. From being a persecutor of the church, he became a believer in Christ. And this is the person Jesus said, He will carry my name to the Gentiles. He will suffer immensely for the sake of my name. And Saul started. Didn't go to the Gentiles yet. He did start preaching the gospel. Started telling people that Jesus is the King. People, of course, were pretty amazed at the change. Some people suspect it's a trick. See, some kind of spy or something like that. But there, but there wasn't one. And with the church, and when the, when the chief persecutor was turned, the church in Judea and Samaria enjoyed a time of stability and growth. And so God used times of peace to grow his church as well. Well, we finally landed in chapter 9, verse 32. But back to Peter after an exciting time with Saul. Peter, had, Peter had been pretty busy with gospel work while all this was going on with Saul. He'd been going around visiting churches in various places in Judea and Samaria. And on one of his pastoral visits, he went to this place called Lydda. You can see it on the map from Jerusalem. You go about you know, 35, 40 kilometers towards the coast. And there's that place, Lydda. Now you pick up the story. In uh, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints. That is the believers. The word saints means uh, the ones who have been set apart for God, the holy ones. Right? These are the ones who belong to Jesus. Who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas. Bedridden for eight years. Who was paralyzed. See, this man doesn't just have you know, psychogenic back pain. Right? He's not got a little... Sprain or something that's going to get better anyway. He's, he's been in his bed for 
eight years. Even if the cause of paralysis was reversed, his muscles would have wasted away. And Peter says to him, verse 34, And there's Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. It's a pretty daring thing to say to someone like that, isn't it? But you know what happens? Immediately this guy gets up. Jesus Christ really did heal him. And the impact on that area, well, it was dramatic. Verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. Sharon's the surrounding area. And they turned to the Lord. See, it wasn't a very big city. People would have known this guy. They'd have known he's been paralyzed for all these years. And now he's standing and walking and, and they're amazed. They know it's a great miracle. They know it's a great sign. Back in Isaiah chapter 35, God through the prophets speaks about the time when he would come to save his people. This is what it says. Say to those who are anxious of heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God who will come and save you. The eyes of blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer. People of Sharon and Lydda had seen this happening. God had come to save his people. Jesus, through his apostle, had healed this lame man. So they turned to the Lord. They trusted in Jesus. They, 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 they took him as their king and came under his kingdom. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles, what does this story remind you of? Anything it reminds you of? Anyone? Lazarus may be the next one a little bit. Here's this guy who's paralyzed. Yeah, that's right. The man who comes down from the roof, isn't it? In, in, have a look in Luke, uh, the next slide. Okay, that, that, that is in from, this is from part one, from Luke. Right? These guys bring, to bed, bring on a bed a man who's paralyzed. Try and bring him before Jesus. and Can't find his way in because the crowd is so big. Let's him down through the roof and when Jesus saws their faith, he says, Man, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees question, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus perceived their thoughts and says, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier? To say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, went home, glorifying God. The amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, We've seen extraordinary things today. See, it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? What's the difference? What's the difference between that and what happens with Peter? The forgiveness of sins, okay, because Jesus links it to, to, to his forgiveness, all right, and shows that he's got authority to forgive sins. What else? Jesus has compassion upon him. Yeah. It's mentioned here. Very certain that Peter would have had compassion, but, but the compassion of Jesus. Yeah. 
Yes, notice that. Jesus, he's doing it here on his own authority, isn't he? In fact, he's, when he's healing this man, he's showing that he has authority to forgive sins. When Peter does it, what does he do? Jesus Christ heals you. See, who is the one who's doing the healing? It's still Jesus. Jesus was continuing his work through his apostle. And the miracle that Peter did was a classic Jesus type miracle. That's the kind of thing only Jesus could do. Because Isaiah 35, he is God come to save his people. He is the one who fulfilled Isaiah 35 in his own ministry. And he didn't stop doing it when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven. He continued to do it through his special authorized representatives, the apostles. And here he was doing it through the apostle Peter. So Peter was acting like Jesus. Jesus was endorsing Peter. Now, there's more. Peter keeps on moving. He moves on uh, further away from Jerusalem and he comes to a place called Joppa. Can we have the next slide, please? Thank you. We can see Joppa. It's on the coast, right? Keeping on going up, down by the sea. And we pick it up in verse 36. Now there in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated, was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Isn't, isn't it, just by the way, isn't, isn't this a lovely way to describe someone? Right? Full of good works and charity? I wonder how we'd be described if, uh, when we die. You know? Full of good works and charity is a, is a good one, I reckon. Right. Now, she wasn't a great apostle like, like, like Peter. She was a great one, wasn't she? And uh, this, this, this wonderful lady, she died. Verse 37. In those days she became ill and died, and when they'd washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. Notice that they heard that Peter was in Joppa, and they wanted him to come. They wanted him to come quickly. Because presumably they'd heard how God had used him to heal, how Jesus was performing his miracles through him. See, this, this healing like Jesus thing, it wasn't being done by everyone. It wasn't happening in every church, in every congregation. Right? Don't make that assumption. This was special. They had to call Peter all the way from Joppa, no, all the way from Lydda, to come to Joppa for it. And Peter was willing to come. Listen to what happened. Verse 39. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. That's another amazing miracle, isn't it? Peter is resuscitating someone who's dead. Now, what does this one remind you of? Yes! Yes! Let's have a look at it from Luke. We've got the... Uh, can I have the next slide, please? Thank you. Right, here's the... Uh, Jairus' daughter... And Jesus comes to the house, 
No one can go into the room with him except ah, Peter, James and John. So they've seen it. And the mother and father of the child, they're weeping in mourning. And she says, no, don't, don't weep. She's not dead but sleeping. And they laugh at him. And he takes her by the hand and says, child, arise. And she gets up. But again, notice the difference. Jesus just raises the girl. Peter kneels to pray first. Why? Because like in the previous miracle, it's not really Peter that's doing it, it's still Jesus. The Acts of the Apostles actually is Acts of the Risen Jesus, isn't it? And so in verse 32, when it became known throughout Joppa, many believed, not in Peter, but in the Lord. Now, this miracle doesn't just remind us of the miracles that Jesus did. There's an Old Testament precedent as well. Remember in our Old Testament reading this morning? 1 Kings 17, we read about Elijah. And Elijah did something like this too. Again, like Peter, he prayed for the widow's son. The child was revived. Now I'll tell you another interesting thing. It wasn't just the prophet Elijah who did it. In 2 Kings 4, you can read it at home, Elisha does exactly the same thing. Elisha was someone that Elijah had trained. So if Elijah was a Jedi, Elisha was the Paduan. Before Elijah was taken up, Elisha asked for a double portion of his spirit. One of the same spirit who rested on Elijah to rest on him. Elijah didn't know if it was going to happen or not. He said, look, if you see me being taken up, because Elijah was taken up into heaven, if you see me being taken up, it will happen. Elisha saw, and it did. And he became the prophetic successor of Elijah. Peter was one of the people who had been discipled by Jesus. He was one of the apostles, the witnesses of the resurrection. And not only was he a witness of the resurrection, he was a witness of the ascension as well. He had seen Jesus being taken up. The spirit that had rested on Jesus rested on him. And in a sense, he became the prophetic successor of Jesus. Now, we've got to be careful here, because this idea could lead us astray if we take it too far. There's a significant difference, isn't there, between Jesus and Peter? Jesus is the Son of God with authority over life and death. Peter is the servant of Jesus through whom Jesus exercises his authority. So Peter is not a successor of Jesus in the same way Elisha is a successor of Elijah. And there's no suggestion that Peter is like in the first line of succession from Jesus. This goes on down, 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 down the ages because there's no suggestion that that's going to be the case. And it's not just Peter who is doing these kinds of things. The other apostles are doing it as well. And some others too. But the fact remains that Peter and the other apostles were delegated authority by Jesus. And this delegated authority is is being shown in these things that they're doing. These miracles. Now, why do you think the Holy Spirit is telling us about Peter's ministry here? Now, there's lots of summary statements, isn't it? All over the place. Oh, lots of healings, lots of wonder signs and wonders. Lots of... Why all this detail at this point? Why is he telling us? 
Why is he being depicted as being like Jesus? Why are we being shown so in great detail that Jesus was acting through him? Well, remember the question we had at the beginning about knowing if your boss is really right in promoting a change in company policy. You see, the scene is being set for a very, very important event that we'll look at next week. That event is a turning point in the history of the church. It's got huge significance, especially for people like us who don't come from Jewish stock. But very, very, very controversial. Peter was going to preach the gospel to a Gentile who would be converted to Jesus as Messiah and receive the Holy Spirit without becoming a Jew. It sounds so normal now. But it was unthinkable to many people back then. And so the Holy Spirit gives us this passage and the human writer Luke gives us this passage to make us see Jesus is going to be behind it. Peter is a genuine apostle. Jesus had been working through Peter, doing the same things that he did when he walked on this earth. So we can be sure that he stood behind Peter in the very next chapter as he opened the door of the kingdom to the Gentiles. We'll talk more about that next week. Or similar anyway. But as we think about, looking back, what we've seen so far, three things seem to stand out. First of all, as we look back on that sweep of the first part of Acts, we see that God is fulfilling His purposes. His plan was all laid out in the Old Testament. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And He is making it happen. Jesus is very much in control of all the things that are going on. From the appointing of His new apostle Matthias, the appointing of Saul, the conversion of Saul, and the appointing to the timing and effects of the persecution. Everything is going on according to the plan and program of the risen Jesus. And that is really good to know, isn't it? Jesus is building his church. He is superintending the spread of his gospel. There may be good times, there may be hard times. There may be stability, there may be persecutions. There may be good times within the church. There may be difficulties and fights and sin. But, in the end, it's all under control. Jesus really, really is Lord. Secondly, we saw some good examples and bad examples. Saw the example of the early church and their devotion to apostolic teaching, the fellowship and the breaking of bread, the prayers. That's a good example. Saw their commitment to evangelism, their generosity to those in need, the priority of the word of God and prayer, their willingness to face persecution. Fear of God rather than man. Good works of Dorcas. Gospel initiatives of Philip. All good examples to imitate. On the other hand, we had Ananias and Sapphira who pretended to be more generous than they were. Came under God's judgment. 
And we had Simeon who thought that godliness was a means to financial gain. And the Holy Spirit could be bought or sold and was sternly rebuked. There are warnings and encouragements and examples. But finally, we touched on that passage about Peter. And what God is saying to us there is the very same thing he was saying when it was first written. Jesus continued his work through Peter. Jesus continues his work through his apostles. And so you can trust the apostles to speak for him. We don't have apostles of Christ with us today in the flesh. Jesus appointed his twelve apostles, the Jews, his apostle of the Gentiles. He made no provision for succession because they're still our apostles. Still. God has preserved for us the apostolic writings. The apostles still teach us. They still speak to us in the New Testament. And we have in these pages the witness of the apostles to the Lord Jesus. And God still stands behind that witness. So not only are the scriptures the very words of God, they are, they are also the words of men. Men who spoke from God as they were led by his spirit. And Jesus, our Lord, is the one who backs them up. So trust the apostles. Trust your Bible. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus is indeed building his church. We thank you that he is in control. And that he is working out his purposes. We thank you for the way that was seen in Acts And we thank you that that is still true today. That as the gospel goes out into all parts of the world, Jesus is still Lord. And he's still working out his plans and purposes. We thank you, Father, for the encouragement and the comfort that gives us. And to know that he's king, and we're not. Help us, Father, to, to fit ourselves in under his program. To submit to his rulership as king. To see his gospel go out into all the world. And we thank you that he is sovereignly working out all the details so that, that happens. Father, we thank you for the warnings and encouragements that we've seen in this part of Acts. Father, as we look through the different things, we we know that for different ones of us those, there are different warnings and different encouragements that we pertinent to us and we pray that you help each of us take what we need and we thank you Lord Jesus for your apostles whom you trained and you appointed the witnesses of your resurrection given your spirit led into all truth delegated your authority we pray that you help us to be faithful the teachings that they have given us handed down for us in your word pray all these things heavenly father in Jesus name Amen